Hey friends, we hope you enjoy this sermon from St. Jude Oak Cliff. And if nobody has told you today that they love you, we do. But more importantly, God does. I pulled a, um, a fast one on Nika this week. She came over. We have our time to get together and talk about the week in ministry every Tuesday morning. And I just said, I think you need to preach this week. She's preaching this week. And I said, she said, why? And I said, because we've always done everything in stereo from the very beginning. We are looking at hermeneutics, which is how did the apostles read the Bible? How did they understand it? They need to understand it from my perspective, but the church also needs to understand it from your perspective, which is different and complementary. It sings in harmony of the same song, which is Jesus. And she reluctantly agreed, because I basically said, I'm not doing it because we've always done this together. It's got to be the beauty of what we do here is Jesus is so big, we can't just look at Jesus from Mark's perspective. It's got to be seen from Nika's perspective. There's four Gospels for a reason. Jesus, he can't be contained by this. He has to be, as much as we can, we apprehend and hang on to him. So Nike agreed to do that in terms of um, doing a complimentary message this week on serving and understanding Jesus through the book of Genesis. So thanks, Nike. I appreciate that. Thanks, Mark. Oh, no, I have to preach. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, thanks for the opportunity to get to share your word, um, a word I deeply love. Would you be with me this morning? Allow my words to be beautiful, true, and right, uh, and allow it to be nourishment to us um, as we listen, Lord. And so we love you. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Um, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but Martin and I have uncanny things in common. Um, both being Enneagram 8s mean that we kind of have a disposition toward life where we just, we enjoy anger, we enjoy robust conversations. I've often remarked, if someone just saw us from a distance talking, you would think there was conflict. But we're probably just discussing which pickleball shot we're going to drill the next week. Um, we're both huge NBA fans. We're West Coast babies. And one of the weird things that we both love, because neither of us have a sweet tooth, but we both weirdly love peanut M&Ms. Please don't buy any from me. I have an unhealthy love of peanut M&Ms. And one time I mentioned that I call them devil pebbles because they're the only candy that I can't seem to say no to. And Jim Epperson bought me like a giant like container of them. And that's how I got diabetes. And so, uh, I'm just kidding. But, so Martin and I are very similar. We have moments where, like, we just, it's, it's fun. Like, we just have so much in common. But one of the areas where we are very different is where we got our theological foundations. You just heard Martin talk about being in stereo. Martin's foundational years of building his theological understanding were in a Reformed context at Westminster Seminary. I, on the other hand, had my foundational years built at an evangelical, non-denominational school. And Dallas Theological Seminary also happens to be dispensational. So in terms of differences, we're pretty far apart within still being evangelicals. And so Martin and I, again, grew up reading different theological books, learning from different theological authors, approaching the scriptures from a different lens. Now, Both of us, over the last couple of decades, have been on a journey of expanding our theological education. Our libraries have gotten bigger. Our heroes of the faith have gotten bigger. And so we both have a lot in common now in terms of our theological agreements. But if he has a knee-jerk reaction to something, it tends to be from a Reformed worldview. And if I tend to have a knee-jerk reaction to something, it tends to be from that non-denominational, you know, evangelical background. So I'll give you an example. When we first started St. Jude, we were part of the PCA, which meant my role was bound to not include preaching or the sacraments. Women are not allowed to do that in the PCA. 
So when we left, we knew we had the opportunity to say, what do we want for not just NICA, but for women in Journal at St. Jude? And as we discussed, rolling it forward, knowing that we were going to eventually move into a place where a woman was going to both preach and do the sacraments, we talked about anticipating maybe frustration or pushback. This is where our knee jerks were different. Martin said, you know, people will notice when you lead communion the first time. And I said, oh, buddy, they'll notice when I preach the first time. And that gives you an idea of the different ways that we came into this conversation. For Martin's Reformed camp, the sacraments are a little bit higher than the preached word. But for those from the evangelical, non-denominational camp, preaching tends to be the higher element. And what's interesting about our body is some of y'all noticed the first time I led communion. Some of y'all didn't notice at all when I preached. And some of y'all really noticed when I preached and didn't notice at all that the sacraments had only been Martin up until that point. So this gives you an understanding of why the stereo has been important. Neither of those views are, are correct, but I wanted to demonstrate for you, sometimes we approach things from a different vantage point. And so, to that end, I know I've been preaching a lot in Martin's trip and his surgery, uh, but when he asked me to preach this weekend, I did push back. And I said, are you kidding me? We're paying you to, no, I'm just kidding. But I, I just said, Martin, they miss you. I miss you. Like, come on. And he said, no, no, no. He said, hey, I want you to give your Herman and Hank. So if you weren't here last week, Martin used the metaphor of Herman and Hank, which, by the way, did any of y'all wonder just, like, where he got that graphic? Jess wanted me to be very clear. She did not create those graphics. (laughs) I said, no one wondered that, Jess. But when I saw that old school, like, the old school man in the robes and then the young guy, (laughs) he wasn't young, but in in the basketball, I was like, what did you Google to find that? Because I don't think he created that. Uh, but his, you did create it. Oh, I was going to say, there's no way you know how to do that. This is one thing we have in common. We are not, uh, we are Luddites through and through. We prefer books. People are like, we have a Kindle. We're like, mm, Kindle. So sorry for those of you. We will be buried in our books someday. And that is only because our loved ones will want to get rid of our books. So, So when he talked last week, though, he talked about Herman being an apostolic way of looking at the Old Testament. He's playing on the word hermeneutic, which hermeneutic is sort of how you think about interpreting the Bible. So he talked about Herman being a more ancient way, and then he talked about Hank being a little bit newer. And for him, his Hank Nudic sounded like this. He said, the scriptures reveal God, but they're also binding of God. In other words, the scriptures reveal God, but God is also bound by those scriptures, And he said that because of the Westminster Confession. The Westminster Confession helps us to make sense of so many really beautiful things theologically. But when it comes to Scripture, because they say the interpretation of clearer passages makes sense of the not-so-clear, they have rules for interpretation that tend to supersede, when they're not at their best, God. So if there's a contest between God says, and the scriptures say, sometimes scripture can rule, which is why Martin says there's often a rule that can bound the scripture. That was his Hank Nudig. And Martin, of course, disagreed with this, but very gently, he didn't want to throw Hank out with the bathwater, because the, the principle of we use clear text to help us make sense in the not-so-clear, it's a really helpful principle. It just can't mean that the scriptures are our highest authority when we have a God who is sovereign over the scriptures. And so Mark would say, Herman would agree that God is revealed in the scriptures, but God is not bound by the scriptures. That was his Herman. So if Westminster is Martin's Hank, then what's my Hank? 
And for many of you who your background is like me, you grew up in non-denominational, perhaps you've been at churches where DTS, uh, you know, graduates have preached, or maybe you've just been in non-denominational spaces. If Martin's was the Westminster Confession, our hank is we hold to the plain reading of the text. That's our hank. The way that we understand the scripture is you've heard people say, hey, we just stick to whatever the plain reading of the text is. And they don't mean the Greek and the Hebrew. They mean the English translation in their hand, which is often the ESV or the NIV in the circles that we run in. So you might have seen, and at some point, these were very popular bumper stickers. You might have seen, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. We've seen those stickers in evangelical churches. Faithfulness in many evangelical circles, is trusting the English Bible's plain reading. Two scholars who have studied evangelicals immensely would agree with this. They would say this is how evangelicals tend to approach the scriptures. This is our Hank Nudick. One scholar is Con Campbell, and another scholar is Mark Knoll, which, by the way, his name's Con because his full name is Constantine Campbell. He's Greek. And one time I was in Athens, and he had a video crew come in because they wanted to film us photographing ancient manuscripts. And every day for four days, I called this man Colin, and no one corrected me, including him. And then later I was like, why is his name, why do they call him Colin if his name's Constantine? And they were like, we don't. We call him Con. (laughs) So anyways... Con and Mark, Noel says of this, Mark says, one of the consequences from the dogmatic kind of biblical literalism that gained increasing strength among evangelicals toward the end of the 19th century, he said the result of this biblical literalism, this plain reading of the text, was reduced space for academic debate, intellectual experimentation, and nuanced discrimination between the shades of opinion. If you were here when we went through the Tim Keller isms, and I talked about anti-intellectualism. This is a little bit, this is the same echo. Con, not calling, Con Campbell says the evangelical grid of biblical interpretation is de facto the highest authority rather than the Bible itself. For Con, the commitment to the plain reading of the text is higher than the scriptures. Which I will tell you, the highest thing has always got to be the triune God. But this shows up in many evangelical circles. And so Mart, I thought last week, did a brilliant job of gently deconstructing Hank because he didn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I want to do the same today. But when I say I gently want to take apart biblical literalism, I want to make sure, though, the wall is on the ground when I'm done. I want to be gentle that I don't hurt anyone who holds this view because I think it's a really beautiful thing to desire to be faithful to God by being faithful to his scripture. I think at the end of the day, though, that this way of looking at the scriptures will fail you, could hurt you, and more tragically won't ultimately lead you to a more faithful understanding of the God of the scriptures. So while I want to be gentle in my deconstruction, I want to be complete in that deconstruction. I, again, want to commend anyone who thinks that taking this plain reading of the text is a faithful way because I think any desire to be faithful to God should be celebrated. I just want to give you a better tool. And so today we're going to talk about the three reasons why I don't think the plain reading of the text will get you where you want to go. And then we'll talk about if Martin's hermeneutic was the scriptures reveal God, but God is not bound by them, I will then offer you mine at the end. So the first reason we can't rely on the plain reading of the text is the text at times makes it impossible to do so. 
the, the text itself, if you just read this thing start to finish and you made notes of all the times that you wanted to take in the plain reading of text, you will find out it, at times, won't let you do it. For, for one, at times, it seems to contradict itself. If you, for example, wanted to serve the Passover meal in your home, you would have to make a decision, either looking at Exodus 12, 8, and 9, with Exodus 12, 8, and 9 tells us, they are to eat the meat that night. They should eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water. That Hebrew word right there is bashel. Do not bashel your meat when you serve the Passover meal. So you say, great, I have my instructions from Exodus. I'm ready to go. We're going to roast the lamb. And then your little kid comes in and says, oh, I thought we were going to use the Deuteronomy instructions because if you were to pop over to Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 7, it says explicitly, you are not to sacrifice a Passover animal in any of the towns the Lord your God is giving you. Sacrifice it only at the place where the Lord God has chosen to have his name dwell. Do this in the evening as the sun sets up at the same time of the day you departed from Egypt. You are to cook, that word cook there, the CSB wanted to soften that. Guess what word it is there? Bashel. It says boil, if they actually were to translate it literally. In Exodus 12, do not bashel your meat. Deuteronomy 16, make sure you bashel your meat. You know what? That's why they say cook, because they don't want anybody emailing them about it. This is what translators do. I'm just kidding. But this is an example, actually, of people who, with ill intent toward the scriptures, this is, a clear, this is an example they give, a very clear uh, contradiction in the scriptures. Okay, we can keep going. You go, well, that's the Old Testament. Passover is different. Great. Let's say you have a young widow among you, and she's trying to decide to hinge or not to hinge. Do I swipe? Do I not date? Do I? What do I do? Should I get remarried? If you go to 1 Corinthians, Paul would say to that young woman, no, no, you should remain single. It's better for you to remain single so you can be unequivocally devoted to the Lord. Maybe she doesn't like that answer. So all she has to do is pop over to 1 Timothy. And you know what it's going to say in 1 Timothy? You should get married as a fitting to the Lord. What's she to do? We could keep going. You know, it's funny. In the 1880s, preachers literally expounded on the Bible about whether or not they should follow this verse in Deuteronomy 23, 12 through 14. It says this. You're to have a place outside the camp and go there to relieve yourself. Bathroom humor from the pulpit. It says you're to have a digging tool in your equipment. When you relieve yourself, dig a hole with it and cover your excrement. For the Lord your God walks through your camp to protect you and deliver your enemies to you so that your encampments must be holy. He must not see any indecent thing among you or he'll turn you away. Preachers in the 1880s preached out of this topic a lot. You want to know why? Indoor plumbing came around in the 1880s. Should we literally have an outhouse, or is it okay to bring the plumbing inside to the holy place of God? I don't know if common sense or a nuanced understanding of the Bible won, but I think we can all agree that we're grateful for the direction that it went. But this is an example, a true example of, of pastors who held to the plain reading of the text, not knowing what to do with the invention of indoor plumbing. The plain reading of the text often dismisses very necessary cultural background information that makes sense of these apparent contradictions. So for those of you who are literalists, and right now I've just upset you by giving you contradictions, the Exodus account is when they are people on the move. They most likely needed to, to roast the lamb. In the Deuteronomy account, they're already settled. They're not in the Bedouin lifestyle anymore, which is why people believe it accounts for the difference of instructions, different manner of cooking when they're settled. For Corinth, the women there, they have an over-realized eschatology, and so Paul wants them to remain devoted to what they're doing. 
But in Ephesus, which is where 1 Timothy was written, there's a little lady named Artemis, who is a false god, who called on women to remain single for the wrong reasons. So Paul is countering Artemis by encouraging them to get married. And do I think indoor plumbing is a good thing? Yes. Hopefully I didn't have to clarify that. But this is an example of the, plain, the text itself. If you just take the plain reading of it, it's going to fail you at times. Because you need context to make sense of it. We just finished up study on First Timothy in our theology class, and Martin helped me title it, More Than Meets the Eye. Because I truly believe you cannot fully understand First Timothy without understanding Ephesus, honor shame culture, Artemis worship, civic voluntary associations, on and on we go. Now, I want you to hear me. I said fully understand. The English Bible we have is a gift. I don't want anybody walking out of here today saying, I got to have a theology degree and no Greek and Hebrew understand my Bible. No. Sometimes the plain reading of text is exactly what we need to understand. But many times, by having more nuanced understanding and cultural understanding, we can really pull out of the scriptures what God is hoping to communicate to us. For example, I know right now the funny thing on social media is to ask your partner, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? Any man want to admit how often he thinks about the Roman Empire? You don't want to admit it? A little bit or a lot bit? Zero. Okay, Carter, any man in here think about the Roman Empire more than once a month? Every day. See, that's kind of what we're hearing. Robin tells me this is a thing. I don't even know that it's a thing, so I don't even understand that apparently the female equivalent is to think about Taylor Swift daily. So I was like, okay. But I told her, she said to me, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And I said, daily. And she was like, no. And I said, yes, I do. I'm a Bible scholar. You can't understand the Bible without thinking about the Roman Empire. And so the plain reading of the text, again, often overlooks necessary cultural, literary, and historical analysis that accurately understands what God wishes to communicate to us. And if we're all being a little honest, the biblical literists know this. Like if we're all being a little honest, we tend to pick and choose what we want the Bible to be literally followed and conveniently overlook others. We do this. I'll give you an example from our First Timothy class. First Timothy 2, 8 through 12 says this. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands, without anger or argument. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess to worship God. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. All of those in the same cluster of verses. I have heard about a billion times in my life women are not allowed to teach. It says so plainly. It plainly says this, but I have rarely heard preaching or a rebuke of men who are angry. I have rarely heard that same passage used of that, and I don't hear many people rebuking women for gold and pearls. So why is it that anger seems to be conveniently dismissed? The golden pearls are said to be cultural things that no longer apply, but women teaching, that is a timeless truth, clearly in the plain reading of the text. If we're being honest, if we really want to take biblical literalism, the plain reading of the text, all the way to its logical conclusion, we will find that the text demands more of us. It just cannot be followed that way. The Bible itself, the way it is written, demands that we look beyond the plain reading to be faithful to what God wishes to communicate. So our first reading, the reason why we can't use the plain reading of the text 
is the text itself won't allow it. And then the second reason we can't depend on the plain reading of the text is the text itself tells us that it's difficult to understand. In other words, the scriptures are not simple. For anyone who says the Bible's simple, I'm like, which part? Because I'm, I'm half the time, I'm like, huh? When I read my Bible passage for the first time. The Bible is not simple, and we know this because the Bible itself says it's not simple. In 2 Peter 3, 15 to 16, Peter is remarking about his buddy Paul. He says this, Just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things in all his letters. So Peter's saying about Paul, hey, Paul's written to you about all these incredible things of wisdom. There are some things hard to understand in them. The untaught and the unstable will twist them to their own destruction as they also do with the rest of scriptures. Peter thinks Paul is hard to understand. That is such good news for us Bible scholars. And also like a total cop out. Anytime someone doesn't like my preaching on any of Paul's letters, I'm like, well, you know, Paul's hard to understand. Thus saith the Lord. But Peter uses the adjective in this passage, that hard to understand. It's an adjective, dusantos. And to describe Paul's writing, it's a hapaxagomena. Hapaxagomena is just a fancy term we use to mean the word is used one time in all of Scripture. So anytime a hapaxagomena comes up, it's really important. We key in on it to say, what's going on here? And the reason why we do that is because often we're trying to understand what a word means. We see how else the author has used it, and we see how else the New Testament has used it, and on and on we go. So when no other time is it used in the Bible, we have to see how the culture is using it to try to understand what's happening here in the Bible. So that same word, dusantos, is used over and over again about writing that's not only difficult to understand, but difficult to interpret. So one example, Diogenes, he, he writes in this book called Lives of Eminent Philosophers. Y- y'all reading that bedside table? Anybody? It's about 2,000 years old. And in it, King Darius is tearing, telling Heraclitus that his work, this is what he says about it. He says, hey, your book on nature is hard to understand and hard to interpret. That's our word. Even the most conversant with literature are at a loss to know what is the right interpretation of your work. This Dusantos word, when it shows up in the culture, is saying, we aren't always sure what you mean. Even people who are good at literature aren't sure what you mean. So Peter is saying of Paul, he's difficult to understand and he's difficult to interpret. If Peter, who is a contemporary of Paul, he personally knows Paul. He comes from the same worldview as Paul. He speaks the same language as Paul. He has the same traditions as Paul. They probably meet at cafes from time to time. They've been known to play bunco together, right? If Peter is saying Paul can be hard to understand, how much more for us 2,000 years later? The scriptures are not simple. And they require meditation and community and study and time and contemplation and tools and maybe most importantly, humility. When we approach it to say this is a holy text with both dual authorship of the the God and the human writing it. And so again, I don't want you to think that the scriptures are unknowable without a theology degree or superior reading comprehension skills or robust understanding of the Roman Empire. You don't have to think about it as much as I do. I'll do that for you. Like, thankfully, our English translations, they do a fantastic job for us. They really do. But, like any great piece of literature, if you go back to any great piece of literature, you will find that as you grow, so does the literature. Have you ever read a favorite children's book, and then you read it later as an adult, and then you caught things you didn't catch before? 
And maybe you learn a little bit about the author, and then that helps you make sense of why they use certain metaphors or why they talk a certain way. This is what the Bible does. There's an amazing moment in the Chronicles of Narnia where Lucy says to Aslan, you're bigger. And he says, no, you're bigger. And I will keep growing as you grow. And I like to think the scriptures are that way. That as we come back to them over and over again, as we grow in our understanding of God, as we grow in our community, as we grow with our studies and time and all of that, the Bible becomes even more accessible and bigger and more beautiful as we go. The Bible is not simple, and praise God that it's not. Would y'all really want a book of just the 25 rules from God? Don't screw it up. We'll see you in a little bit. Aren't you so grateful for poetry and literature and history and all of this? This is how mature Bible readers approach the text. They allow the plain reading to serve as a launching point to go deeper, further up, and further in. The Bible can't rely on the plain reading because at times it will fail. At times it it tells us itself that it's difficult to understand. And the final reason, and perhaps the most important, is the text does not house the meaning. And I have to get a little nuanced here, but you guys will track with me. Martin's your head pastor. We'll be fine. The text does not hold the meaning. The text is a signpost that conveys the meaning of the author. So to get a bit technical, in hermeneutics, which hermeneutics is a word that we use of any literature that we want to understand, there are three big ideas about where the meaning resides. In the early, early days of biblical study, we would say the meaning is behind the text. And what we mean by that is the author is what we're trying to understand. What's going on in Moses' world, in Moses' mind, and let's figure that out. Then we moved forward, and we got really good at the sciences and the enlightenment. And then we said, no, 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 forget Moses, the text. What Moses gave to it, we don't lob him off. What's in the text? The text itself houses meaning. And then in the postmodern movement, we say, no, meaning resides with the reader. And every old person in here is like, heard that before, right? But you've been told, like, I, as the reader, have a response to this, and I get to interpret some meaning. These are the three big schools of thought about where the meaning resides in the text. And what's interesting is there's a correlation between evangelicals' text-based hermeneutics, those who prefer the plain reading of the text, they believe the text meaning can be found in the book. This is all you need. And there's a correlation between that and those who hold to an originalist view of the Constitution. It's really fascinating. So at a paper for George Washington Law, the two authors of the paper noted that there's deep similarities between constitutional originalists and biblical literalists. They remark, literalism and originalism share a core commitment to the idea that their relevant texts have a timeless, fixed meaning that's readily ascertainable. And both maintain that all other approaches to the relevant texts are fundamentally illegitimate because they breach a duty of fidelity. In other words, this is me summarizing it. We're right, the meaning is fixed in the text, whether it be the Constitution or the Bible, and your newfangled way of reading it, whether that's the Bible or Constitution, makes you unfaithful. Now, whether you want to have a debate about the Second Amendment, I don't care. But my point being, when you see people say, the reason why we need to have guns is because the Constitution says, I'm giving you an example of what I mean by text-based meaning. They're not asking, what did the... What did the founders want? That's not the legitimate question. The question is, what does the text say? That same approach is how we come to the scriptures. There's a correlation. The problem with that is the text itself can't hold the meaning. 
Rather, the text is a signpost pointing us to a God who's trying to communicate to us. The scriptures are God's communication through his living word to us. The meaning is not fixed in the book. The book is a portal to a God who is still communicating to us today. We, we believe that this is Narnia, that this is the thing that we're going through to get to God rather than the thing itself containing all of God's communication to us. So if Hank, for me, is the plain reading of the text, then what is my Herman? If the plain reading of the text is the Hank Nudick, what is my Herman? Martin says it like this. The scriptures reveal God, but God is not bound by them. I say it like this. The scriptures reveal God and they serve God. Martin would say the scriptures don't bound God. And I would say, no, they even do more than that. I'm going to give it positive spin on it. They serve God. They are meant to serve the one who has given them to us. Throughout the Bible, it tells us that God gives us his perfect word as a gift to us. Over and over again, it talks about the scriptures as a gift, as God's way of communicating to us. The passage in John 5 that you hear Martin and I cite over and over again As Jesus is talking to the religious leaders and he rebukes him of their handling of the scripture, he says, you search the scriptures because in them you think you're going to find eternal life. But I'm telling you, every time you look in those things, you're meant to find me. And if you really understood Moses, which is to say, if you really understood the Old Testament, you would know that he was talking about me. So he's telling the religious leaders, you misunderstand the purpose of the scriptures. The scriptures do not house eternal life. The God of the scriptures is where eternal life is found. So not only does this teach us that the scriptures serve God's will to reveal himself as king, his kingdom, and his kingdom ethic, but it also tells us to go easy on ourselves because if these religious scholars can miss it, so can we. This isn't meant to be a harsh rebuke of the plain reading of the text so much as to say that oftentimes out of our desire to be faithful to God, we put this thing above God himself. And instead when we open this, we're meant to open it so that we can look in And see the face of God staring back at us. So what's our so what? Biblical literalism is born out of a desire to be faithful. And I I think, again, that's a really beautiful thing. I really do. And my goal in here is not to shake up anybody's hermeneutic so badly that you don't want to approach the scriptures. My goodness, there is so much to be gained from just reading the plain reading of the text and taking it at face value and desiring to live a life faithful to God. But I wouldn't be your resident theologian if I let you get away with that, would I? The reality is, is the only way to be faithful is to be faithful to God first and allow its word, his word to do its job. If you're faithful to the word above God, then you're not allowing the word to do its job. This word cannot contain God. It's asking too much of the scriptures. If you ask the scriptures to contain all the revelation of God, you're asking this book to do more than it was ever designed to do. But if you'll open it, and you allow it to be God's communication to you, then it'll be a portal to more beauty, more love, more grace, more goodness than you could have possibly fathomed, and it will open up more than words could ever say. There is so much more to God than his words could ever say, but the words serve him by revealing much of who he is. And that kind of reading, that Herman, to allow the scriptures to serve God, that requires nuance, contextual consideration, wisdom, community, patience, And so we're going to make our way through Genesis. And my hope is that as we look at the plain reading of the text, which many times will be great and accurate, that we will push beyond that. That as we come through Genesis, we will keep peering into those passages until 
we see the face of God looking back at us. That's my hope for us as we dive through this book. Martin and I will wrestle through these texts. We will do our best to present them to you as a nourishing meal. But my hope is as we all wrestle through what will be difficult texts at time, we will see like Jacob, who we will encounter in Genesis, that when we wrestle and we hold on, we may just find that there's a blessing waiting for us at the end of that. And because this is sharper than any two-edged sword, you might limp out of here with your blessing. I make no promises. But this word is a portal to a God who loves us. You have never been more loved than you are right now. I cannot believe he sprang that song on me today. Unbelievable. This word will testify to that. But more than that, this word will testify to the God who loves you infinitely more than you can fathom. That's my hope for us, is that we'll let go of the plain reading so that this book will do what it's intended to do, which is to lead us by the hand to the God who loves us infinitely. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and the gift that your word is to us. Would you be with Martin and I as we uh, spend our time wrestling through Genesis? Would you give us a blessing? Would you make us faithful exegetes? Would you help us to be faithful to you above all else and good stewards of this revealed word? And God, would you be with my friends as they also wrestle and as they peer in? Would you give them moments of unbelievable joy and curiosity Would you allow them to see you more clearly, more faithfully, so that they would see a love and a goodness and a mercy that awaits them when they encounter you. Bless us as we head into this Genesis study. Be with my friends, Lord, and be with us as we wrestle through your word. We ask all of this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit.